Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Billingham. I'm George Fragopoulos. I'm Blake Howard. <gasps> He's back. They got him back. They <laughs> did it again. <laughs> He's here. Uh, this is Oeuvre Busters. You, Boom. I feel like you're getting more and more confident saying the title of our podcast. Like, I, well, I, I took a French class so I could pronounce Oeuvre improperly. <laughs> I could do it. All these French philosophers are so pretentious. Oh, they're the worst. Sending Liam all this hate mail. Yeah. I get letters from Sartre. Is it Sartre? <laughs> Sartre? Well, I mean, he's dead if you're getting letters from Sartre, but I was thinking about like maybe from like... From beyond uh, the grave. <laughs> from Oh, don't, um, don't throw your knowledge of philosophers at me. I, Is that the guy who wrote... Everybody knows you. Elaine Badu. He's a fucking oh household name. So, yeah, I so, know. I have that book. So, so George, <laughs> I think the I challenge is for you to write in... <laughs> dead French philosopher hate mail to Liam and read it out on the show, like about his pronunciation and just about his character. Um, I think both yeah. both, in general, good. both good. I think that's a good idea. It sounds like a great project. George reference uh, a not dead white philosopher <laughs> challenge, please. Let's see if we can do that. Uh, Blake, we're so happy to have you back to the show. Welcome back. Thank you, lads. How's, how's things going? Yeah, going really well. Um, you know, uh, in Oz... There's only one state, which is our southern state in Victoria, which is still has sort of pretty heavy uh, coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 sort of restrictions. In my state, it's pretty good. Um, good. Uh, it's, it's, it's slowing down. It would be nicer if people actually wore a mask. Um, or, or uh, Is that a problem there? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, yeah, look, it's, and, that- and it's also weird, like suburbs to suburbs as well. You know, um, uh, mm. I... My local suburb, I go into the Woolies, uh, like a little lo- local supermarket there, and there's always lots of people wearing masks and stuff, and so people are keeping pretty safe, which is cool. And then um, we went into this other place. My wife was like, "I'm I'm getting sick of our current shops that we go to, so let's just go somewhere different for you know a novelty of something." And we went there, and it was just a whole lot of old people, none of them wearing masks. I'm like, oh, cool. So everyone's going to be dead here soon. Like we're going to be shopping like the people in Dawn. Not not just because they're old. Not just because they're old, because (laughs) none of them were wearing masks. I'm like, cool. This shopping center's real estate is going to be like primo, right? Like, so you should invest now, (laughs) invest now in a seat in that cafeteria because uh, a lot of these people aren't going to be here next summer. Um, But it, look, it's, it's a horrible garbage fire of year 2020. And, um, yeah. you know, I think both 
both of us slash all three of us, both of our shows, but all three of us have found solace in creating and having a dialogue with great pieces of art and, um, and great filmmakers. And so literally that is what's kept me going is an unquenchable thirst Amen. to continue to produce things that basically bring people joy and distraction. Well, the good news is that there's no garbage fires in the United States that we have to put out. Everything's, <laughs> totally, totally everything's going great. There's yeah. definitely encroaching fascism isn't a <laughs> encroaching. Maybe already your fascism isn't a oh, huge problem. <laughs> um, well, very, very quickly, we should we should intro you to the folks who, who if they did not hear you on the show before or in the 4000 podcasts you uh, produced this week. Blake Howard is a writer, film critic, podcast podcast host and producer behind One Heat Minute Productions, which includes One Heat Minute, The Last 12 Minutes of the Mohegans, Increment Vice, All the President's Minutes, Miami Nice and Josie and the Podcats. Almost said podcasts. Josie and the Podcasts. Indoors. I nailed it. Indoors featuring legendary filmmaker Michael Mann. And let us all bow down to dad. One Heat Minute was named by New York Magazine and Vulture as one of 100 great podcasts to listen to and nominated for an Australian Podcast Award. Creator of the Australian film collective Graffiti with Punctuation, Blake is a Rotten Tomatoes approved film critic with bylines in Empire Magazine, SBS Movies, Va- Vague Visages. How about Visage? No, I can't <laughs> say anything go. in French. I did it. <laughs> Dark Horizons, Film Link, and many more. Blake, if you ever need us to record your bio, just let us know. We'll, Look, we'll be sure. I'm to. taking this clip. I'm taking this clip. I'm going to rip it straight out of this show. Um, we have a lot to talk about, but the one thing that I wanted to just mention beforehand is uh, Blake's I thought awesome of beard. you. I thought, yeah, the amazing beard that's going on. That's the core, the core beard. But um, over uh, when I found out that when I read Bill Gayabiri's piece on Michael Mann shooting Tokyo Vice and having to come home um, and uh, when they were shooting that and having to had to start production, I bought that book and read it in one day. And I just was like sitting there fantasizing about the film that hopefully we will get soon Uh, from man uh, himself. Oh, look. The the series. Yeah, look, it's... um it's exciting. Whenever you hear that Michael Mann's working on something, it it you know that it's going to be like it, it's 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 a sign of end times because you know the, he worked on Miami Vice and then there was <laughs> Hurricane Katrina and now you know there's the COVID nineteen pandemic for Tokyo Vice. I mean, it just feels like the world wants to stop us from more great Michael Mann things. But when he can <laughs> pursue and break through, um, you know, there's there's always going to be. I can just say to anyone listening, there will always be someone who has read every single article about anything that, you know, if you have a Michael Mann Google yeah. alert, as I do, um, and also a Google alert for all of his movies, then you will make sure that you'll find out what, what, what's up with Mr. Mann. Um, he's, yeah, he's, no, he's undeniably my favorite filmmaker. What's He's up the with Mr. Man sounds like the name of another great podcast. <laughs> That's, uh, it's about Michael Mann. It's, it's better than well, yeah, our ma- mansplaining uh, podcast It's podcasters walking around stalking but, Michael Mann, trying um, to figure out what's up with them. So just, speaking of Michael Mann, do you guys think Michael Mann likes Akira Kurosawa, who is the subject of this week's podcast? He has to be a fan, right? Uh, Michael Mann is a fan of Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, he. Hmm. I, I would say he's... I mean, he loves John Ford. Um, Mann mm. loves John Ford, so it wouldn't... I wouldn't put it past him. Um, there's a, there's actually a great list, and I'll just while while you know, um, uh, while we'll vamp. great podcast hosts can sort of vamp and Google um, <laughs> while they're doing this at the same time. But Michael Man in Michael Mann's top ten movies, one of them is um, like My Darling Clementine, which is uh, you know the ah. the, the the Ford um, White Earp uh, love story 
re- you know the rendition of that sort of love story version of the uh, of that tale. Um, and he does have sort of spectacular formal taste when it comes to classics. He loves The Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, funnily enough, it's one he, of my favorites. Um, uh, funnily enough, he loves uh, In Inaritu's, um Beautiful is one of his favorite films of all time. Mm. Um, uh, huh. He loves Apocalypse Now. Uh, he loves Battleship Potemkin. Um, he also loves, get this, Avatar. I don't know if he's trolling. Um, he loves Avatar. Uh, <laughs> I can see that. I can see he that. He loves Citizen Kane. Uh, yeah, My Darling Clementine, as I said, Passion of Joan of Arc, Raging Bull, Doctor Strange Love. Um, so the Wild Bunch. So, you know, this is, um, you know, this is a guy who has that sort of formal taste and Kurosawa, you know, loves John Ford explicitly and implicitly. So I think he'd mm-hmm. be a guy who would appreciate and love this movie for sure. And George, what movie are we talking about? Liam, we are talking about The Seven Samurai from The Magical Year 1954. Um, So The Seven Samurai begins with a village of farmers being threatened by a group of bandits. The bandits decide not to raid the village, even though they have the opportunity to do as such, since they raided it rather recently. So they hold off. Their plan, however, is overheard by a farmer who is hiding in the brush. Farmers then quickly decide that they have to hire some samurai to protect the village, but they have no money to offer them. So the village elders suggest that they find some hungry samurai. Eventually, they find one by the name of Kambe, who is Takashi Shimura's character, an older and wiser warrior who begins to help them recruit the other six samurai that they need to protect the village. Um, the important ones, I guess, of the bunch are Katsuhiro, who's the youngest one and who falls in love with Shino, who is the daughter of one of the farmers. There's Kyuzo, who's the stoic and cold-blooded swordsman, and Mufuni's character, who is Kikuchiyo, who is kind of like the wild card uh, mercurial one, the uh, the badass, um, so to speak, the Han Solo of the bunch, if you will. Second half of the film is a slow boil as a samurai prepare to defend the village. We're taking through a whole number of preparations, how they plan on fortifying the village. The film slowly builds up to a final cataclysmic battle between the samurai, the villagers, and the bandits the number of smaller skirmishes throughout. At the end of the film, samurai and the villagers kill the bandits, but they lose four of their comrades, including Mifune. The film ends with the remaining samurai, Kambe, Kachuhiro, and Shichijoru, um, Shichihiroji, sorry, walking out of town, looking at the burial mound where their friends are, and it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory, and Kambe says that in the end, we lost this battle too. The victory belongs to the peasants, not to us. Roll credits. Yeah, the uh, action epic, super important, great movie. Um, I I want to just give one note that I think is an interesting way to start our conversation, which I read reading Stuart uh, Galbraith's book, The Emperor and the Wolf, is that Kurosawa was almost replaced making Whoa, this movie wow. because he was he went so over budget and he was so incredibly demanding. And when they when they when they made him take a break, he came back and he was even more demanding. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> but but there was apparently a um. He was really concerned that he would be replaced because there there was a film director who uh, who they were going who was be couldn't be the potential replacement who was extremely um, conservative and incredibly anti union and was involved in sort of crushing the unionize, unionization attempts at Toho in the forties and he was really worried that this person wouldn't be as sensitive to the class dynamics that were going mm. on in the film which I thought would be an interesting thing for us to explore uh, Blake what do you think of this movie Oh it's a flat out masterpiece it's it's 
with fingerprints. It's fingerprints are in so many movies. Um, but also so many movies have tried to do what this did and bludgeoned the nuance to death. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, they took the the wider concepts and, you know, people are going to say Magnificent Seven and, and, and those sorts of things. They're going to play around with those, um, you know, whether it's the remake or the original. And at, I'd like to even point to something like 13 Assassins, which I think is like a, a great oh, yeah. sister movie to this movie, which is essentially just like a supersized, you know, contemporary Seven Samurai. But that is way less concerned with class issues and politics and the despondency of falling empires and falling structures of mm. uh, society and is way more interested in lopping off the limbs <laughs> Of of poor uh, of poor concubines who then have to paint like vengeance with a paintbrush in their mouth. I actually took my wife to that movie and she looked at me and was like, "What is this?" And uh, and you were like, "I'm a catch. I'm a catch." I'm like, I don't know. I thought it was going to be a samurai movie in the ilk of the Seven Samurai. I wasn't expecting it to be this violent and vulgar right off the bat. But yeah, I I I think. Um, you know, it is incredibly hard approaching this film. And you guys asked me to do this one and I was like completely blown away. So thank you for the honor. But it's incredibly hard like doing the research because like in my hands right now, I'm literally holding, you know, Roger Ebert's great movies uh, piece about it. I've got the Criterion booklet, which also has the incredible Ken Turin um, who wrote a piece about Ooh. it. Um, and also, you know, Pauline Cowles, I Lost It at the Movies, which has her, you know, this is the great artist of film criticism writing about this movie. So it's like almost impossible to say more than they've said, but I think I, if I could, I just want to read, um, Please. I just want to read a little paragraph from, uh, from Pauline Cowell's review. So she says, it bears a resemblance to the Hollywood Western, the beauty of the Western genre in its formalization and stylization, the clarity and simplicity of the action and motives. Although The Seven Samurai is brilliantly complex visually, although it can be interpreted in terms of such complex themes as the problems of honor, the meaning of human cooperation, the interlaced responsibilities of defenders and defended, it preserves the chivalric simplicity of the Western plot, which is even more wonderful in the nuclear age. Seven hired knights defend a village against 40 mounted bandits. Their pay a few handfuls of rice. Everyone knows what the fighting is about, who the marauders are, who the protectors are and who the particular piece of land where they battle will be joined. It's that is that in my mind is wow. exactly what, you know, I mean, you don't get much better than Pauline Kale, but that's what, that's what I get is there is a, there is strange relationships going on. And I would just even add and expand to like mentors, mentees and leaders um, and, and the people that they're leading and, 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 you know, and, and also being, having heaped the responsibility just for that sort of uh, mercenary, like I need to be fed. So I'm doing a job. So also my morality is going to be curbed because the need for what I'm, what you guys are giving me is so profound. Um, yeah. I, there's just so much that's going on in this movie that it does it very, you know, it's almost like a symphony. It's happening in the background. It's, it's yeah. not, it's not, you know, the foreground can be the action and the motives that are this great clarity, but it's almost like it's enriched in this tapestry of all these other emotions and conflicts. And so there are central conflicts, which can be really easily distilled seven verse 40 simple, save poor people. But, um, I think what gets me every time is just 
looking at the expanse of the frame, looking at in that 40 and quality of looking at all the different characters' faces and trying to figure out what they're emotionally going through. Um, and yeah, I just, I don't know. Like, this is a movie in my current office. You boys are seeing it. Um, I, I, I can twist my, I can twist my screen around. So I, I work on the opposite side of the desk. So behind me is my screen, which is where I, you know, will watch things and I can regularly have seven samurai just on with mm -hmm. nothing on. I'll mm. be doing work and just nothing on just cause I want, I just want to see that world. I just want to peek in. Um, and I just, yeah. and I, I think, that a lot of people have tried to, you know, do the aliens version of this in any appropriation of the text. You know, they want to make it bigger and more bombastic and they always miss the emotion. And for me, I think if you just turn off the noise, um, what really makes this one of the greatest movies of all time is how deeply you feel the plight of these people and the solidarity of going up against shitbag marauders. Amen. Well said. I think really quickly to add to your point about everything happening in the foreground and the background, one of the things that I read when I was reading the about the film is that Kurosawa made the peasants all live together for like the entire shoot and the whole shoot <laughs> speaking, was a year. Speaking of demanding, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, and like, you know, they were at night, they were like going back to the hotel and all getting drunk together. And like, he was a famous drinker. And so they were just like in each other's business all the time. And it, it's demanding and exacting, but you're right. It comes through in every frame of this movie. George, what do you think? Yeah, this film rocks. Yeah, that's all I want to move. Let's move into this movie. Just fucking rules. It rules. It's so so goddamn good. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's just. Uh, I, I think what we'll talk about, or at least kind of what I'm curious uh, to talk about or interested to talk about, is again, and Blake said some of this, but about how. I mean, aside from just the the uniqueness and the glory of the film itself about how influential it is. So we like recently did an episode on The Dirty Dozen. Mm. And while I was watching this, I was like, oh, my God, like this yeah. film, like there would be no Dirty Dozen without a film no, like this. Not at all. There's no wild bunch um, without this film. Yeah. And to just think about how influential, again, this film is, it's just it's monumental. And again, yeah, just like being in that world and also some of this, especially like the last 20 minutes of this film and the epic scope of it and where it builds and the, that final set piece and the rain and the final battle, it's just so. It rules. Yeah, it rules. It and it's fucking just like, rules. <laughs> and to think like it was being done, you know, like in the fifties, you're like, holy shit. Like, so when you said that this film went over budget, like you definitely feel it and you definitely see it way over budget. Yeah. You, you know, to your point there, I, I want to jump ahead. There's there's a lot of things that um, I, I saw this film for the first time in high school at the first like cinephilic event I ever attended. It blew my mind like it, it changed my brain forever. Um, and I've probably watched it. It's probably the Kurosawa film I've seen more than any other Kurosawa film because I've known it for the longest amount of time. So upwards of seven, eight, ten times. I've seen it in the theater a few times. You know, George, in the notes, you made a comment about how the battle sequences are, are all these smaller set pieces that they unfold. And I thought that'd be an interesting thing to think about because not to draw an obvious parallel, but there is truly no epic battle in this movie. And mm -hmm. I, you know, it, it draws an interesting distinction between like, there's no Marvel movies without Seven Samurai. No. I also don't think so. There's no Avengers. No Avengers, but yeah. But what's so amazing about this movie is that the battle sequences will always, to me, rock more than any of these like giant green screen saturated, you know, like re movies that we see out of the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe for a couple reasons. One is it's Kurosawa and two, because everything is practical. Yeah. 
And the fact that we're brought back to like that, that Kurosawa not only didn't have the means because those things didn't exist and they, but that it's all about framing and it's all about composition and it's all about shooting multiple cameras at the same time. It's the first time he was doing that and editing at night so he could see what he was getting. Um, it's just so, it's such like a practical lived in visceral kind of movie. And Mm -hmm. I, I think that it's, we sometimes action films, not among the three, the three minds assembled here, but sometimes people are dismissive of action movies. And I think that like every movie is an action movie. And this is such a good action movie because it's rooted in a momentum defined by a very clear expectation. As you said, Blake seven versus 40. And we know that this thing is coming. And I just think it's, it's so archetypally perfect. And I don't know what else to say about like that, that the frame of it, except that it's, it is to me a perfect movie, even when it feels like in the beginning, you're like, okay, you know, the beginning is so iconic, maybe the first 40 minutes, but like the second that we get back into that village, it's just like, it's like eating a, a really good steak or something. It's just, it's just so good. And, and it feels different than any of his other films the, to the, me that the, it's a really different movie. The one thing I want to tack in with what George said, that's the mastery of great action set pieces in battles that a lot of those larger than life, wildly orchestrated, huge battle sequences forget is that each of them are their own great tales, usually conflicts between small groups, whether it's one or two people fighting 10 or whatever it's like, and it's actually finding ways to tell it. And even in big bombastic sort of Lord of the Rings things, it's like there is a big battle going on, but all of the actual mounting conflicts to those things are like, well, here's Legolas, you know, taking down an elephant or whatever the hell it is. Not the Timothy, but the thing, whatever it is. Um, here's Gimli. <laughs> might've been Timothy. It might've been Timothy. <laughs> <We're not> <laughs> <laughs> We've heard his, uh, if you've ever seen him interviewed about acting, um, you might think that, but uh, you know, those sorts of things, but I, I love that. I, I much prefer, I don't need colossal stakes. I, and this is yeah. the, in, in all movies that I think grow too big for their boots, um, everything goes too wild. Whereas some people are like, Hey, I want to see a car driving from building to building in Dubai and fast and the furious. I'm like, you know what I really liked when three cars surrounded a truck in the first one, <laughs> I'm fine. Yeah. Like, I'm good. Look at that. It's a real car. It's a real truck. They're driving yep. real fast. And there's some cool, like, practical camera moves. Or, or you know, it, I mean, it may, it sounds like it's made up, but it's like that's why the Mad Max Fury Road had such an impact mm-hmm. colossally on action cinema. It was like because most of these guys should be dead because George Miller had them launched from exploding vehicles and giant, uh, you know, you know, these kind of giant, like, uh, uh, uh pole vaults that would fly yeah. off into the distance and things like that. But you know, that's, that's why people go back to that movie endless amount of times. Obviously it was, you know, digitally, um, fixed on the edges, but the, the essence of the urgency of the action is there. And I think that that's what Kurosawa lays out. It's like, I don't want to just see mm-hmm. seven against 40. I want to see people running through a town, have yeah. a physical landscape, have these little battles where one guy looks like he does have the upper hand against five and then five have the upper hand against one. And it's like, th- these are mini dramatic Titanic moments that all happen along the way. Yeah. It's like, um, it's analog and, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm just floored by this. I just, I, I can't, I can't really. I just finished watching it about three minutes before we recorded, and like, I literally had to finish it and be like, okay, here we go, here we go, let's do it. Um, I one thing that stuck out to me this time, and and I don't think this is something I would have thought about, but 
uh, you know, in, in light of our present conversation about like who, who holds power. This movie has a lot to say about who holds power, where power resides, the, the, the sort of class dynamics. There's that scene at the beginning that is like a set piece unto itself where there's the, what are called coolies, but are the day laborers versus the peasants versus the samurai and the kind of like the coolie saying something like, oh, you know, thank God I wasn't born a peasant or whatever <laughs> the case is. I think that stuff re- resonates through the whole movie. Um, but there's, I want to jump into this moment towards the end of part one as a jumping off point where Kikichio, played by the, the, ma- the man, Toshiro Mifune, shows up dressed as a samurai. Yes. And they're all horrified by it. And, um, um, sorry, Kambe played by Takashi Shimura has this line where he says, you can't understand, uh, you can't understand unless you've been hunted. And there's sort of a takedown by Kikichio of both the peasants, but then the samurai class. Mm -hmm. And I, it, it brought up a lot of really interesting questions, at least in the U S and I'm sure something that's resonant everywhere is the question of like, who's responsible for the behavior of these samurai? Who's responsible for the behavior of these peasants? And like, how much are they, how much can, how much can these peasants trust these samurai? Like I've never really thought of them as in the watching of this movie. And it's been a long time since I've seen it as kind of the bad guys or potentially kind of at the end of the era that they're living a kind of regressive, oppressive reactionary force in the culture. And I was wondering, I mean, if you guys, if if any of that resonated with you, Blake. Yeah, it's a, it's a deeply complex issue and it's weird because we don't really have a contemporary, like, uh, a contemporary parallel. Like the only thing I can think of is like, Imagine if there was still militia forces at the end of like the civil war or like colonial forces that just like that were kind of affiliated with the law, but not just bombing around your suburb. And if you piss them off, you might die, you know, and if they come into your town, you best feed them, you best give them what they want Mm -hmm. and you best offer up your ladies because that they're essentially you're going to just have to treat them like they're a, a kind of occupying force. And they, this kind of revolving occupying force of samurai, they're almost semi-marauders themselves, except that there's this like tenuous law affiliation. And at the time that we're watching the movie, or at least the way that I interpret it, it's like they're no longer part of that, part of this sort of really clear factional classes and the samurai who you right. know, go for each of these different land you know, barons that are around the country, they're kind of just now, some of them are baronless, leaderless, and then they just go off and do their thing. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I don't think it's wrong to right from the outset say, you know, they may not be, they're definitely not necessarily good guys. They're good by their actions. Um, and that's, what's good right. about them, but it's in, in, inherently are they good maybe not and and are people exploiting the fact that they can dress up like samurai when they're not technically samurai to get these benefits sure yeah they are that's kind of the one of the things that happens in this movie it feels really prescient to right now george i don't know i i was i watched this and then jumped on twitter for a second and saw the footage of these militias in louisville yeah yeah, yeah. um, i don't know if you have any thoughts on it well no yeah like blake's right i mean there's no exact parallel but i mean it does sound they are kind of like you know um, cops in a certain sense. Yeah. And they're, author- they're kind of like to some degree kind of authorized to do whatever it is that they need to do to survive. But yeah, this group seems to, again, be like 
directionless, kind of not beholden to any certain specific kind of authority. But there is this kind of, yeah, this like ominous quality to them, which again, you get with one of the subplots where the daughter, Shino, is kind of, um, her hair is cut off. So she looks more like a boy. So that way, obviously, she's not, she doesn't draw the attention of the samurai. So it has like a lot of really interesting things also to say about gender. But also going back to that scene that you mentioned, Liam, about like the, the class dynamics, which again, I think are really interesting, is that Mufuni's character, right, is the son of a farmer. And yes. that, that comes up. And, and also like that he gains that armor. He gains that he finds that samurai equipment from the villagers, right, who have taken it from like fallen warriors or from people who have left it behind in battle. They chased, yeah, they chased down some yeah. samurais and murdered And that's them where obviously like his kind of critique... The rumor Funi's critique in that scene comes like, oh, the peasants, like, oh, they're not ex- as innocent as they seem to be. And that's like one of the first kind of inklings you get that they are, in fact, also to some degree, like, duplicitous, that they are also like cynical. They're also kind of looking out for themselves. So, yeah, I mean, the class dynamics of this are, are interesting. And again, you could see it in a variety of ways. It's like nuanced for sure, but it also seems to be an example of Kurosawa's cynicism and pessimism about the human yes. condition. So that even when these samurai are there to help these poor farmers, these poor peasants, and they are, they are also exploited in turn by them. Yeah. Uh, it kind of almost reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where they go to Springfield to make Radioactive Man the movie. I love that episode. It's <laughs> yeah, so of good. And then they're chastised at the end by uh, Mickey Rooney. He's like, these, po- these poor innocent Hollywood folk just came to your town to make a movie and you exploited them horribly. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the, the same first exact step in real time where that parallel has been drawn. No one has ever had that conversation before. It's pretty impressive. That's, that's a great that's, fucking episode. That's, that's a great. That's a great pull. And for any Australians yeah. who are listening to this show now, they know how deeply those Simpsons pulls from those early seasons resonate. But yeah, look, I, I agree. It's the live American society. The society rather is that there's not a really complex class system going you know, whether it's both derived from racial or social, you know, racial or social or economic Mm -hmm. stuff. It's like, no, we're just America, you know, and it's like, it's a big lie. And in a lot of texts, whether it's, you know, uh, you know, (laughs) speaking from the colonies, um, in a lot of British texts and and Commonwealth texts, and there's, there are class distinctions and Australia has bought into its own lie that that we're this classless society. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, so sure. and uh, yeah, you guys do you right? Like most of the rest yeah. of this country, you just keep doing you. But the but it's it's down racial lines. It's down um you know it's down lines of gen. It's generational divides too. And so for me, you know when I when I look at when I look at this movie, I I love the the naked classism. I love that it's just there, and it's great to be mm-hmm. able to examine it because it's like the the beauty of Kurosawa's films, I, f- I think, and, and, and what moves you, and it's like the same with Ozu films as well, is that you're watching a completely different culture that has completely different dynamics and completely different history, yet things can so deeply resonate with you. You're just like, yeah, that's, that's you know, that, that could be me. That could be my poor family coming and migrating to this country or it could be my poor family who did migrate to this country and weren't that well off because a lot of the sons and fathers went to war and some of them died and most of them came back either drunks or you know completely fucked up you know it's like you Mm -hmm. can start to draw the parallels of your own life and see really deeply into that and um uh, so that's what i kind of like looking at it is because it's what's sad is that it still resonates so deeply. Um, but it's what what's good is that what why it sort of lasts is because it does at the same time 
You know, there's something interesting to that, especially when you think about that this moment, which, you know, I mean, I think every time you watch this movie, you, you get something new. That's what makes it really amazing. But the scene where Kikichio picks up the baby and freezes mm. and Shimura is like, what's wrong? And he says, this baby is me. This is exactly what happened yeah. to me. And it, it makes you think about larger questions of like the quote unquote, like calamity of history yes. and like historical cl- forces clashing, especially in Japan at this time, which is such like a, a, an era shaping and changing event in the culture. It feels like there's a, an attempt here to kind of say something about the horrors of like Japanese history, which I don't think would resonate um, when you see that when I saw this film when I was 15, for example, <laughs> yeah. you know goes beyond that um you know one interesting thing that i thought in terms of you mentioned george you mentioned that kikichio's sort of straddled this world between he's like a fake samurai who's the son of farmers but Mm -hmm. one thing i'm wondering if this resonated with you guys did you guys notice the sort of attempt to kind of mirror kikichio's behavior with katsushiro's so kikichio is the sort of the kind of Mm -hmm. rebellious um, he's Mifune. He's the he's the rebel. It's like one of the most iconic performances. Uh, Katsushiro is played by Isao Kimura, who's the younger kind of samurai. And it seems as though Kikichio has a kind of watches the way Katsushiro relates to people and wants to wants to be what he describes. When he's envious of the heroic samurai, Kikichio tries to do that. He tries to steal mm. a, a, a a rifle. And it feels to me that there's an attempt to draw a parallel in Kurosawa between like the eager guy and the and the jaded but really just as naive kind of character. Did you guys get any of that? I've always thought that they're kind of like different destinies of the same desires. Like where it's mm-hmm. like, you know, um, uh, Kikuchio is, he's, he's so, he's modeled his entire life from all of these mentors who've lived this, sort of sacred warrior existence and he wants to see that but there's also in that rigidity i guess is that envy of and and that desire and maybe that sort of that fantasy of what freedom is like and what's cool about mifune's katsushiro is that he's just like he's id like he's just doing whatever he wants to do and he's and he's unburdened by his morality or his history or his customs like he'll 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 wear the armor and he doesn't care what it means whereas i think kikuchi is like this means that i've trained for x amount of years of my life and sacrificed all this time and you're just pulling it off a dead guy and wearing it and you get to be like me and so i think that that's i think they've got a great relationship i think it's fun to think about i think that's a great reading i don't think you're necessarily wrong um i just i haven't i haven't quite put those together i've always thought of them though as there's the same inkling there's the same thing that they would yeah maybe it's that they would like that they would like that destiny they'd like to be heroes but i think katsushiro has always thought he's just never going to be a hero he's, he's just may may as well be a, a may as well just pillage kikichio you mean Muf- kikichio has never wanted to be a hero Mufune's Mufune, yeah. yeah 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 right yes yeah um, the, one of the things that made me think of this, and it only occurred to me after the fact, is that in Stray Dog, Mifune, Mifune's character is sort of placed in, as, as the sort of responsible cop, is placed sort of in contrast as a mirror to Yusa. 
the criminal who he's tra- hunting down, yes. who's also played by the same actor, Isao <laughs> Kimura. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's like an incredible, I didn't know it, but it's like an incredible kind of oeuvre spanning thing that he uses these two characters in opposition to one another. Hmm. Um, and it really resonated me with me watching the film because I was like, oh, this guy has been in a uh, Kurosawa movie before. And I went back and I was like, holy shit, <laughs> he's played Yusei. <laughs> so it's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I'm continually struck by, by Mufune in this movie. You know, oh, I was this week, so I was reading some stuff, including we had A.S. Hammer on the show and he was sort of talking about how he thinks Mufune's kind of hams it up in this movie a little bit. And then I was reading Galbraith's book who, and Galbraith's book is like, he's amazing. Yeah. I think that this has got to be one of the most like indelible, important performances yeah. in film history. Yeah. There's yeah. a couple of male performances that happen around this time that I think of. And um, he's right on the line. Like he's, there's a classicism about what he's doing. So they're like, there's, they're still keeping with, it's just before sort of, I guess you would break through and call like modern um, understandings of performance, but it's, Mm -hmm. it's on the line. It's like, um, he's not quite Brando and on the waterfront because Brando's all Mm. the way there. But I would say his kinship is Montgomery Clifton, a place in the sun is a great one because he's like doing some business, but it's on the modern spectrum. So I think that that's where Mifune is great because he's still, they want to play like, uh, there's no way in Kurosawa's fastidious preparation of this movie that he's not like, I want you to be big in, he's intending in those moments when he's big, he wants you to be big, but it's, it's the same criticism. And to go back to my favorite film of all time, heat that they give like Pacino. It's like, when is he actually being big is the question that I want to ask people who say that Mifune is like putting it on. He's putting it on because he's, he's showing his bluster. He's trying to scare the peasants. He's trying to show how tough he is to the samurai. And it's actually, then you just take the moments where he stops all of the literally being a performative person like performative. Yeah. yeah. In character being performative, that that's where you get the windows into like, Oh, actually no, this may be one of the best performances that has ever been committed to cellulite. Yeah. Some of the best moments of him acting are like the cutaway scenes where like the rest of them, for example, shit on him. Mm. Yeah, and he, the camera cuts to him, and he's like scratching his head, or just kind of rubbing his neck, and he kind of looks uncomfortable, and he's and he's kind of you know realizing that he's being called out, and he feels bad about it. And again, it's this moment where he inhabits this dual nature, where clearly he is, to some extent, on the top of the, of the food chain or close to it, especially in relationship to the peasants. But in regards to the rest of them, he's very much kind of a poser, and he's still very much trying to prove himself constantly to them like it's also really fascinating in a freudian way that he has this massive fucking sword (laughs) that he walks around with and he doesn't really you know he doesn't keep it by his side it's like always over his shoulder he's wielding it around and it's clearly a really fucking powerful phallic symbol but it also shows how insecure he is in many respects well back then i didn't have ferraris to drive into yeah exactly (laughs) they had big fucking (laughs) swords Give me the biggest sword you have, please. I will say my favorite part in the whole thing is when he sees a woman from across the room and he turns to uh, Shimura and he says, she's got a great ass. That's my favorite. That's my favorite part. Of the, that's a really good scene. Um, please yeah, someone I, I on the that, internet, please someone badly 
badly subtitle uh, Dub it. badly <laughs> subtitle one of the Mifune scenes. Send it to all three of us. We need just, it in just our Just overdub lives. it. Please, It'll be really for the amazing. love of God. Um, when reading a little bit about the preparation for this film, uh, one of the things that's interesting, and, and my fa- maybe my favorite detail is whenever Kurosawa was writing a script, they'd go to a Ryokan and get drunk all, write all day and then get drunk at night. It's like sounds like the greatest greatest life. Oh and like, God. you know, it's 1947, whatever, or 1951, so he can tell his wife, like, I'm leaving for eight weeks, don't call me. And he just goes and does his thing, which, you know, make, it makes it clear why he was so productive. You get away with that stuff. But Mufune was the only person that could come and visit. And originally, the original version of the script was supposed to only be about one samurai, a day in the life of a samurai who commits seppuku at the end of the movie. Mm. And doesn't, sorry, doesn't Galbraith also say it was 500 pages long or something? Yeah, the original, the first version of it was 500 pages. (laughs) But apparently there originally, there were six samurai and they realized they needed like a funny samurai, which is a weird thing to think because it's, the other characters are pretty funny. Um, But... Apparently, Kurosawa said to Mifune, we're writing a seventh samurai. You're going to play it. You can do whatever you want. Mm. So he just was like, this is it, man. I want you to like grip it and rip it. And the other thing that's really interesting to read is that apparently when he was around Kurosawa, he was a completely different person. He was like quiet and timid and like kind of... and, And it speaks to the idea that like, a lot of the time, it seems as though Shimura, Takashi Shimura's perf- are stand-ins for Kurosawa, and the idea that maybe the relationship between Mifune and Kurosawa is paralleled in the Kikuchi Kam- Kikuchi Okambe relationship, mm, yes. which comes back to the, something you mentioned earlier, which I'd love to talk about in this movie. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting older male, younger male relationships in Kurosawa, and I, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the ones in this one, particularly... Uh, Kikuchio's relationship to Kambe, especially when we first see Kambe getting his face shaved and they exchange these looks. Um, for me, it felt very like paternal. There's like a really warm paternal feeling in this movie, especially in those moments, especially with Kambe. Yeah, I think it it's a really strange relationship. Like the father-son right. relationship because, or whether it's a mentor to mentee relationship because I think it goes a couple of ways. It can either go mm-hmm. this you know, um, you're sort of undercutting them and you're elevating the standard and you're trying to just sort of chip away, chip away at this ego to get them to where you want them to go. And then other times it's very nurturing and paternal and you and you just want to carry them through. Um, and then other times it can be a little bit opaque. And I think that this movie has touches of all of that. And Kurosawa has touches of all of that in his movies in the way that people relate to one another. And I think that... Um, I think great leaders and when you have a great group dynamic, a leader can't act the same way with everyone in the crew. You know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Neil McCauley doesn't act the same way with Chris Hillis as he does with say, you know, Michael Torito because they're different. Like, you know, um, so I love in this, that this is a tender relationship. This is, he can see that this kid wants to learn. And because of that, there's a tenderness and that there's a there's that. And then when he has to be tough with some of the other guys, it makes sense for him to be tough. And Shimura's character also is fundamentally good. I mean, the yes. first time you see him, he's literally saving a child from a kidnapper. And he is the one. Yeah, there's a, to the degree to which some of the other samurai might be cynical or kind of jaded or doing this because it obviously... Um, 
is going to result in them getting riches or whatever the case might be, fame. He is generally doing it, what he's doing and helping the, the farmers out of the goodness of his heart. Um, and I think that speaks to, again, like the relationship between him and Mufuni's character too, in the sense, like, again, it's this kind of nurturing attempt, right? It's this attempt to like show him the ways like to, you know, bring him up or kind of, um, yeah, I mean, just, just, it's a very humane relationship. You know, it, we, we mentioned the, the seven samurai because we did an episode on our Patreon last month, patreon.com slash superbusters on the Dirty Dozen. Always hustling, boys. And it, it feels Always to me like Always be closing, an- Liam. Always be closing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I can't remember any Glengarry Glen Ross lines. Fuck, I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready. Just say, just say fuck you. It's, it's all over Fuck you. Um, yeah. no, sorry, guys. I didn't mean that. I love <laughs> no. the scene in Glengarry Glen Ross when uh, Alec Baldwin turns to uh, turns to Jack Lemmon and says, she's got a great ass. That's my favorite. That's my favorite moment in Glengarry Glen Ross. Um, the, now I lost my train of thought. Damn it. Oh, I Something don't know. Something about Shimura. Shim- uh, Something about the relationship, oh, father God. son. It'll come tenderness. back to me. It'll come back to George, me. George, oh, you and man. I just start what happens. the cats. <laughs> when a joke, the when the jokes happen, this is. I'm not getting it back. Damn it! Let's jump to the end of the movie. George, in your notes, yes. God, I bet that's going to come back to me, and I'm going to interrupt you. Um, when Kambe says that they lost the battle and that the real victory belongs to the peasants. Ooh, deep. I think this movie. I, I wonder what this movie reveals about. Kurosawa's like class interests because I I feels resonant with some of the other films. What do you think? I don't think he's. So I will say this again. I I don't think it's this reading. Let's say that the peasants or the farmers are the bad guys or anything of that nature. It seems to me that it's just again this kind of commentary on human sacrifice and the ways in which oftentimes th- those sacrifices are not repaid. Um, or that they're impossible to repay. Mm. And for me, it's just kind of a nuanced reading, again, of these people. Like, it would be such a shittier film if they were just really simple, naive, innocent farmer folk who didn't, you know, who just needed the samurai to help them. And that there weren't, obviously, to some degree also, um, self-interest and self-preservation that was necessary for them. And they would kind of do anything to survive. So to me, it was just about the nuance that the story requires in regards to who these people are in relation to the samurai. Hmm. And again, yeah, I think it's like Kurosawa's commentary on, again, regarding issues of sacrifice, regarding issues of what it is that we owe to one another, how we live in relationship to one another. Yeah, I mean, this is post-war Japan. So yeah. the, right. the, the big thing you got to think about is... And and Pauline Cowell actually says this phrase in a in a review which I love, which is that that the seven samurai pours all its energies into the extremities of human experience. Mm. And so yeah. when I think about this movie and when I think about the ways that it's engaging with its past and its history, it's talking about like the peasant class is always the fodder and 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 the place where all of the impacts of warring cultures lie and split factions mm. of a culture that is now in sort of repair or disarray in post-war after you know two nuclear attacks and so i think what's really fascinating is that it's talking about like these guys these guys know they're extinct and they know there's no place for them anymore 
And this might be a small victory for them in their minds. But really, the Japan that continues to exist is not theirs anymore. It's my reading of it because yeah. it's, and yeah. it's the same as those, you know, glorious Studio Ghibli movies like My Neighbor Totoro. You know, there's nothing more striking than watching a big giant bear rabbit and two little kids and a couple of little <laughs> other bear rabbits like plant some seeds to a tree and then it exploding like the plume of smoke of a mushroom cloud, like an atom bomb. And mm. I think that that's what this movie's doing in a strange way. It's sort of like, it's re-examining its own history and its past and this feudal Japan culture through the prism of post-war experience. And it just sort of, he's sort of stamping with that line for me. He's saying right now it belongs to the people. We're not, we, we can't, we can't maintain this sort of feudal outlook because this is yeah. where we are. And it's so yeah. amazing to me that there's millions of dollars to spend on a Japanese movie in post-war Japan just to begin with at this time. Mm. But, you know, they're doing it and he's doing it with such grandeur and it's got such a great statement to say at the end as far as peace and, like, the extinction of these sort of characters. Um, it also, that's the melancholy. That's the regret. There's nothing more sad about knowing that you're the last ones. Mm. You know, it's interesting. That's so all. You're, saying, you're saying he's aware he's the last samurai? Oh, oh I see what I did. See what I did. See what I did. That's really M- good. A much, much crappier film, by the way. <laughs> uh, take it, take it easy there, Tom Cruise. Uh, yeah, it's not a great movie. Um, it's interesting that that you bring that up, especially as we. So there's an there's an interesting dis- thing to think about there in terms of what a character like Shimura chooses to do, uh, Kambe chooses to do, in that he's leaving an era of where he's, you know, he's on top. He's now kind of maybe he's on a downward trajectory. And the solution is to assemble a a group of people who kind of like look to the future. Many of these characters sort of look to the future and smile. Like whenever they talk about the battle, there's a couple of the guys who are like, yeah, well, we might die, right? And then there's the the swordsman who's like, well, I'm just I'm going to take as many of these assholes out as I possibly can. And then you have the younger generation who are anxious about the future, who don't know what to think. And and Shimura as Kambe is kind of the character who's like, what we have to do is save poor people. Yes, we have to save the people who 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 do not have the means to protect themselves. And it feels like a pretty powerful statement about like maybe the the older generation in Japan, especially when you consider that the film that follows this one, if I remember correctly, is I Live in Fear, in which Mufune plays an an aged patriarch who decides to move his family to Brazil because he's so nervous about nuclear holocaust. So it's almost like maybe these two films on some way are maybe in dialogue with each other. Yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past it. This Kurosawa guy, I think he's got a future. He's, he knows what he's doing, this kid. <laughs> he's uh, He's got some skills. I remembered what I was going to bring up earlier, which is um, we, we, we talked about the Dirty Dozen. I think there's an interesting corollary between Cassavetes and Mifune, not only hmm. as actors, but in characters in those two films, in that they kind of represent the two characters that look at the situation. These are characters that are that are in groups that are between a rock and a hard place. In the case of Dirty Dozen, it's like we either go blow up some Nazis real good, which sounds great, or we die in, or we, and we die there, or we die in jail. Whereas Mifune is like, well, we either deal with these terrible peasants and save them and die doing it, or we starve to death. And the fact that they're the ones that reveal this to the groups, they're the truth sayers in those contexts, is kind of interesting. And there's, there's a sort of interesting corollary in the way that 
I think Mifune plays plays the part of Kikichio with the ticks and the movements and the kind of craziness, especially when you consider the entire oeuvre of John Cassavetes. Cassavetes is trying to just displace everyone. Right. He's trying to knock them around in the scene to shake things up. And that's definitely a Mifune characteristic in this Big movie time. in particular. So Cassavetes walks into the sword stories like, no, 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 give me a sword bigger yeah, sword. than that guy's sword. <laughs> I want yeah. a bigger sword. I want a bigger sword. <laughs> and then he turns to Seymour Cassell and says, she's got a great ass. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's really good. Um, we, we will, let's wrap it up here. Any last thoughts on uh, the seven samurai? Come on, George. Well, Come I was going to say, I, I was surprised that a movie that uh, has this much math in it was as enjoyable as it was um, because I'm like, the last thing that I want to do while I'm watching a movie is count. Am I right? Am I right? Are you referring to when he's crossing the, the pictures off the... <laughs> he's crossing, yeah, he's like 40 gets seven. I'm like, I'm like, dunce. I'm not fucking here to do calculus. I'm here to fucking see like some sword player, right? I'm trying to... Uh, yeah, what the fuck? In fairness, there is a number in the title of the movie, so you guys might be in the wrong George there. is never watching um, the Ocean's Eleven movies. I'm never I, none of them. No, again. Wait a this, minute! They made it a thirteenth and an eight. <laughs> Math makes no sense. This film again is it's I, it's been a very long time since I've seen it. I'm so happy that I got a chance to rewatch it again. It's epic. It is. Is this movie a masterpiece? It it is a masterpiece, of course, Liam. Without question, undeniable. Maybe the first one we've watched. <gasps> The first one we've watched. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, it's incredible. Um, yeah, but things are relative, right? Like, but I think like there's, there's certain relative, yeah. canonical movies, like yeah. that are undeniably this great. Is one of them, yeah. And it's like speak Seven Samurai. Go ahead. Finished. That's it. Yeah, it's incredible, and it's nice that it holds up. Like it's nice that you can watch it and still feel that way. Like there's certain movies you go back to and you go like, oh yeah, okay, sure, it's good. Like Maltese Falcon is a movie I rewatched. I'm like, boy, that's a that's a good movie. That's real good. But it doesn't. I think it's really great. But You're I don't know that I'm like some Sam Spade fans, baby. I love Sam Spade, baby. <laughs> but I just think at a certain point, I'm like, okay, yep, cool. I get you know. It's as an example. This movie really holds up more and more every single time. I feel that way about the Weekend of Bernie's films. In all, yeah, honesty. me too. Like, I've gone back to them so many times in recent. You're you know, a dick. And I'm like, these films. You know, they don't really resonate like the way they did back in the late 90s. Blake, the before, early, Blake 90s. Before, before, George, you're wasting valuable time. And, um, and I just want to say, I really loved in The Maltese Falcon when Humphrey Bogart looked at Peter Laurie and said, she's got a great ass. And he's talking about Sydney Greenstreet. It's very, it's a great moment. Blake, uh, before we, before we, we say goodbye, um, where where you've just you've just crossed the finish line on 101 episodes of all the president's minutes correct that's right a little bit of very quick inside baseball how do you prep for so many episodes uh so what i do is i watch about 20 minutes of the movie sometimes 10 minutes of the movie over and over again for the sequences that i'm preparing for for that week and uh, so then, you, in a context, you view it in the context. Yeah. So what I try and do is not watch the individual minutes. I try and watch a little bit around it. And sometimes mm -hmm. certain scenes have like parallel scenes or companion scenes. I've got to go back and revisit those, especially like a mm -hmm. deep throat scene. I've got to watch both the Hugh Sloan scenes. Mm -hmm. I'm watching both the Bradley scenes. I'm making an excuse to watch Bradley. <laughs> Um, wow. And then I try and yeah. prepare for each of the individual 
guests that I'm talking to, as well as mm -hmm. I've already read All the President's Men like three times this year. And so... Do you sleep? I do. But okay. probably wow. not as much. You are... I think you are the hardest working man in podcasting. <laughs> no question. Look, I just had Dave Chen on for episode 99, and I would say that if, if I could be... He works pretty hard. Dave Chen's <laughs> almost as hard as it gets. <laughs> he goes hard. Yeah. He goes hard. Uh, speaking of going hard, we are going to continue our exploration into the oeuvre of Akira Kurosawa and Toshiro Mifune. Next up on the show, I Live in Fear on November 11th. Blake, we can find your work um, on various platforms. And what's the website is uh, One Heat. If you just go to oneheatminute.com, you will literally find out yeah. everything about all of the shows. And just like you, always be closing. <laughs> go to Patreon forward slash One Heat Minute. You'll go to an exclusive podcast that happens weekly as well as news about upcoming projects that we're not sharing yet and raw and long form unedited interviews that are going to be part of those future projects are going to find a home exclusively on Patreon. Amazing. Go check that out. Thank you we'll so much, sir. To all that too, of course. All of it's going to go in the notes. Um, Thank you, gents. Uh, always be hustling. Please, hustling? Please hustling? rate, review, and subscribe to the show, www.uberbusters.com. Blake, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, lads. Thanks, Blake. You're the best. It was yeah, awesome. We'll do, we'll do it again. I was Liam Billingham. I was Alain Badu. And <laughs> I was George Fergopoulos. He's been there the whole time. Yeah, he's been quiet. <laughs> and she's got a great ass. <laughs> <laughs> well, that really <laughs> fell apart. This was Uber Busters. <laughs> Thank you. We made it. We made it. Thank you, boys. All right, Blake, we'll let you You're go. Thanks, man. Talk soon. Take care of people.